welcome to the edition podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Henry. And this is a really fun week because basically you get to listen to me chat with my mate. Uh, Lynn O'Donnell has been a journalist in all sorts of places all around the world. We even got to work together at one point. So it's really fun to have you on the show. Thanks for joining, Lynn. Well, thank you, mate. That's very nice of you to have me on. No, I'm thrilled because, well, we'll just be careful because we don't want to recreate exactly what it's like when you and I have a glass of wine and catch up. You know. know. Um, That could be dangerous. Very dangerous indeed. So just give a brief outline of the stuff you've done, places you've worked, because there's been all sorts of shenanigans you've been up to over the course of your career. (laughs) Well, that's one way of putting it, I guess. I started my career in Melbourne on the Sun News Pictorial, which was the biggest selling newspaper in the country at the time, one of the original tabloids. And it was set up by Sir Keith Murdoch, um, father of Rupert, and it no longer exists. It had a sister paper called the Melbourne Herald, and they have since been merged into the um, the Herald Sun. Uh, so that's a, a little bit of uh, nostalgia. I left there and worked in radio for some time. And then, oh, I also had a stint as the features editor of Smash Hits magazine. <laughs> so from interviewing um, Johnny Rotten uh, to um, then I went to China and I spent a lot of time in China, about 13 years. I went first to Hong Kong, then Beijing, Shanghai, back to Hong Kong, bounced around China for for all of that time, working for Reuters and uh, the Australian newspaper and others. And and then 9-11 came along. And when 9-11 happened, I was on a train between Urumqi and Kashgar in far western uh, China that borders uh, Pakistan. And um, I didn't find out that 9-11 uh, atrocities had happened in New York and DC and elsewhere until about 12 hours after they'd happened. And that's a story in itself. And from having been on the front page as a China correspondent, because China was the biggest story in the world until 9-11, I had to figure out what to do next and stay on the front page at the same time. So then I became a war reporter and I did that for the next 20 years. Yeah, I mean, there's so much stuff to unpack there. I want to go slightly (laughs) back to the beginning just for people who were listening in the UK and America, if you could just briefly outline that influence of the Murdoch family, the Murdoch dynasty in Australia, you talked about you starting on one of their papers, because I think Mm. we sort of forget here in the UK and the US that it's not all about us. The Murdoch machine isn't all about us. Well, no, it's not. But um, from relatively humble beginnings, I guess. Sir Keith Murdoch was um, uh, the owner of a newspaper in Adelaide and um, Rupert started there as the boss's son um, doing news and journalism. And I can't imagine what it was like, you know, hard-bitten old heavy smoking journos with their cardigans Mm -hmm. on the back of their seats um, (laughs) dealing with the boss's son but um, I think that he and he owned the Herald and Weekly Times which was where I started in Melbourne on um, the Sun News pictorial and um, then when I started there it was it was a listed um, uh, entity and uh, Rupert wasn't really more than a gleam you know right Um, he he went back to uh, he went to the UK and he started off there and then he came back and um, uh, it was after I had left 
the building, uh, which still exists at the top of Flinders Street in Melbourne, that he came and and took over. And it was a really very difficult time for many of the people that I had worked with and who were working on those newspapers at the time. And I remember one of my friends describing it to me as uh, Flinders Street, where nobody can hear you scream. <laughs> and and he basically changed the entire, well, as we know, the entire newspaper and media culture, um, not only in Australia, but in the UK and America as well. But um, yeah, he got his start in humble little Adelaide. Yeah. And that Murdoch dynasty, the cultural effects in Australia is as large, if not larger than we have it here, isn't it? Well, yes, I think so. When I started off at The Sun, The Sun was, um, it was read nationally, uh, mm-hmm. even though it was a Melbourne paper and the content was very Melbourne-centric, but it sold uh, more than 600,000 papers a day when I was doing my cadetship, my very old-fashioned cadetship. And um, that was huge in Australia at the time. Well, it still would be, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And um uh, it was it was just charming and lovely and uh, you know there was, it, Murdoch basically I think we can fairly say uh, introduced the the divisions that we see that have been um, hammered open by his media um, network and. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a little bit biased, I guess. I have worked for him, obviously, um, yeah. at the Australian, but I, I just and in China at that. But I, I just sort of think that, yeah, this hard nosed, divisive, bitter, um, ruin everybody's, you know, ruin somebody's life um, every weekend with your with your headlines and your intrusion, um, uh, has been as divisive and erosive in Australia as anywhere else yeah mm. it's fascinating here because I, I as I say I think it's important that here in the UK and the US we get reminded of that or at least have some of the wider context of where the Murdoch machine started um mm. so mm. now let's head to China which of course I, I mean I can't begin to process the experience of being a foreign western journalist in China, how did you find that at the beginning of your time? What was like the media culture there when you first arrived? Um, well, my first um, incarnation in China was as um, an editor on uh, the China Daily newspaper, which is um, a state uh, mouthpiece. And I went there because um, it was post Tiananmen Square, Mm -hmm. um, the end of 1989, uh, they weren't getting very many foreigners wanting to go there after uh, that happened on June the 4th, 1989. And um, I was in Hong Kong at the time and I met somebody who had done it. They called them foreign experts and um, they uh, bring them in on the English language publications, of which there are many, Mm. on the foreign language publications because, you know, they have them in other languages as well, um, to make the what is essentially party pre-propaganda look like it's been written by journalists. And uh, I wrote to the editors and I asked if I could have a job because it sounded like a fascinating experience. And they sent me a ticket and a visa. So I got on a plane and I went and lived at that stage. The China Daily was um, the incorporated in the compound of the 
People's Daily, their sister publications. They pretend not to be so much when it suits them, but uh-huh. um, there's there's very little between them. And we lived in the in the uh, same compound as the People's Daily, which is a Politburo level um, uh, entity. And it was fa- absolutely fascinating to see um, how the the media in uh, China was. Um, basically, as I said, a mouthpiece for the Communist Party, but also at a time that came after the Tiananmen Square massacres. So there was a big, big crackdown, very tight um, security and restrictions on uh, freedom of speech and freedom of media. Mm. And also at the same time as um, the Soviet, the old Soviet Union was imploding and the Berlin Wall came down. So there was a, a lot of twitchiness and there was a lot to see in how um, the party um, machine um, utilised, uh, tightened the strictures around the media and utilised the media um, in a way that um, I hadn't witnessed before and hadn't even studied beyond reading Orwellian yeah. um, uh, 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 descriptions of it. Um, and I did feel for a long time, uh, for a lot of that time, like I was in 1984 living it. Um, but also there were... Um, uh, probably a couple of hundred foreign correspondents based in Beijing at the time, and I got to know a lot of them. And um, it was uh, uh, that experience that made me want to be a China correspondent. Yeah, it's really fascinating because it must have been such a cultural shift, having been on punchy Aussie papers to mm. to being in that kind of situation where you're sort of quite you know somewhat nervous about what you're writing who you're writing about how you're presenting it oh well we weren't writing the foreigners weren't allowed to write Ah. all all we did was was edit Uh, we weren't even called editors we were called foreign experts and um we edited and everything that we edited was uh, then again checked to make sure that it conformed with uh, whatever had come on high from from uh, you know the very highest levels of the of the Chinese Communist Party that day and it was it was tightening all the time. Um, we used to have um, competitions between us. There are about half a dozen of us on this paper doing shifts we used to have competitions on the headlines who could get the most facetious headline into the paper um which we did um when um uh, for instance uh, tourists started to come back um uh post 89 um i put a headline on a story about tourists returning to china um look up in the sky it's a plane load of tourists and um people across the city knew that that was mine i ran into people who said i I reckon that must have been your headline so yeah we would we that was about as as brave um as we could be yeah but did that then having had that experience convince you of what was really needed in foreign reporting um i think it convinced me of not what was needed in foreign reporting, but what the challenges would be. Mm. Um, foreign correspondents at that time, I think it's probably less so today, um, were only allowed to live in certain compounds. Uh, so those compounds were, were strictly regulated by um, the Communist Party with uh, military guards on the gate. Entry and exit was checked. 
um, local people couldn't go in. There was a very great effort to ensure that there was uh, uh, as little contact as possible between uh, foreigners, whether correspondents or business people or diplomats and local people. Um, foreign uh, correspondents uh, had to employ uh, foreign ministry um, uh, people as their fixers, and they were approved and each uh, week uh, I think on a Friday, all those fixers had to go for a meeting and uh, download what had been going on, what had been said, who'd been met, who yeah. had been met. Um, apartments were bugged, cars were bugged, um, foreign correspondents were closely followed and monitored, and um, it was a very serious um uh, job, a very uh, people took themselves very seriously, and the job was very serious. And then when I became um, an accredited foreign, and you had to have accreditation, you couldn't just turn up. When I became an accredited foreign correspondent in Beijing, I I knew what I was up against. But I also had, I thought, um, an insight into the into the way the party machine operated yeah. and i felt that i was very privileged to have done that year at china daily as a foreign expert to have contacts inside that system people who were my friends for a very long time and it gave me um, an understanding of uh, the the restrictions on their lives and movements and what they could say, and um, and I watched that uh, open up a little bit, ease up a little bit. People, you know, when when things started to to change, and I knew also what they were losing when uh, things tightened up again, as they inevitably did. So it was the China Daily experience for me was was very very precious, and I was very very glad that I that I did that. Do you think journalists are missing the China story now? We're so focused on all sorts of other things in the world, sometimes ephemeral, sometimes serious, that we're rather missing this hugely significant story that's going on somewhere else in the world. No, I don't think so, Charlotte. I think that um, foreign correspondents and people outside of China who cover China do a very good job. What um, Where that is missed is at the highest levels of diplomacy and business. Mm -hmm. They don't want to know. Um, what happened in Hong Kong a few years ago, that happened when you and I were working together. Yes, um, the crack I remember down you there. doing stories on it. Yes, exactly. And I've since met people who've had to leave Hong Kong. They were uh, arrested and spirited over the border and, and maltreated and tortured in Chinese prisons before being expelled back into Hong Kong. And they had to leave. Um, uh, that What is the, the reality for Chinese people and for Hong Kong people is what's being ignored by the diplomats, by the um, politicians, by the um, uh, 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 business people because they'd rather not know until it happens to them. It's the same with anything. First they came for who and we didn't say anything until they came for us and then it was too late. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, I, I've always found the China story fascinating just in the sense of what we know and what we don't know and what it could mean more broadly at any point. And, yeah, you're right, foreign correspondents do in very difficult reporting circumstances in reality, do try mm. and get information and get past that information on. But but it's it's hard work. And that, of course, brings us to kind of your next happy assignment, which was uh, just as, you know, in basically the Middle East and 
what we might call that period, the war on terror period. Uh, you've spoken about Pakistan. I know you spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. Again, what are the reporting conditions? Obviously, that we uh, I love gossiping with you about all the other stories, but for our listeners, what are the reporting conditions like? What's it actually like to be on the ground with your notebook, with your camera, and to try and get information out of there? Uh, you mean out of uh, war zones? Well, in any of these places, whether it's a slightly more peaceful time in Afghanistan, mm. whether it's mm. trying to deal with the system in Pakistan, what are the different difficulties you come up to day to day when you're just trying to do stories? Uh, well, I, I think that's a really good question. Um, I, I um, Honestly, I can say that it depends on where you are. Um, Chinese people, even when I was there back in the day, um, knew that uh, talking to foreigners, with, even if it was just about the weather or the food, uh, could get them into trouble. And so they were very uh, wary. And there was a lot of... Um, you know, reading between the lines, if you like. But you get to a country like Afghanistan um, and you can ask an Afghan bloke, uh, how's your day going? And three hours later, there's nothing you don't know about <laughs> about his life, his family, uh, his opinions on everything, what he thinks of the dinner. government. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, yeah, so, um, you know, I find um, found um, Afghan people to be very open and loquacious and and um, uh, willing to talk and definitely willing to, especially the men, to have their photos taken. You pick up your camera. <laughs> I remember once I was in, um, um, as the uh, post-9-11 uh, invasion was uh, taking place, I, I was walking through Mazar-e-Sharif, which is a, a, a city up north, and there were all these guys with guns and turbans and looking like, you know, um, they were in the, the 18th century. There's a lot of that that still goes on in um, in Afghanistan. And they were sitting in, a back, in the back of a truck and I picked up, you know, put my camera up to my face to take um, a, a picture and this guy stood up and he held his gun across his chest and I thought, oh, my God, he's going to shoot me. But he was posing. <laughs> he wanted me to get him his best side, looking as, as his best man with his gun up and his, and his head up and looking me in the, in the eye, you know. It was, and that's the way I, I found Afghan people um, for the entire time that I, I covered Afghanistan. It's, um, okay, can, yeah, okay, I've got enough. I've got enough. Yeah, okay, keep going. <laughs> but oh, it, another great quote. You know? yeah, yeah, that's my fourth story. But it, you, must right. have, you must have found yourself in difficult and scary circumstances. And we see that all the time with your colleagues who are foreign correspondents as well. Hmm. Yes, I think the scariest times that I faced were when I was um, freelancing and so running around by myself in both Afghanistan 2011 and then in Iraq um not 2011 2001 and then in in Iraq uh, uh when that invasion happened um I um in 2003 when I was a bureau chief in Afghanistan for AFP and for Associated Press um it was my colleagues who faced the greatest dangers, um, who went out and covered marches and yeah. the aftermath of suicide bombings and 
you know, photographers and camera people, especially because if you're going to get the pictures, you have to be there and you have to be close. If you're just getting the words, and that's my thing, you've got a notebook and a pen, and these days your iPhone on, you know, record, um, you don't have to be as close to the bullets as as the photographers do. And, um, you know, I can put my hand on my heart and say uh, in all the time that I was managing uh, news gatherers, um, I I didn't lose anybody. And um, uh, I, I, I do know I have lost friends who were working for other news organisations and agencies, at, you know, while I was sure. there. And and I think that that is the, probably the worst thing that can happen to a, a newsroom manager is losing people. Um, and the other thing that goes on in those circumstances is that a lot of people who are working with you and for you believe that they are immortal i don't think yes. that's a, a bad way of putting it the, it, it'll the never invincible for correspondent yeah and and that was hard to sometimes that was very difficult to deal with you know saying no you can't go and cover that rally you know no you can't do this no i don't want you to do that what i want you to be is safe and alive and um there's there's always pushback uh in those circumstances but um like I say, I, I, I never lost anybody. It, it's a fascinating kind of thing to process because we do think I often of foreign correspondents, in my opinion, is just the kind of roving, as you say, somewhat invincible individual running around a, a difficult environment trying to get an exciting story with while the editor's screaming down the phone not to go or be you know be safe. Yeah, there is a whole infrastructure in place in lots of these countries, um, in which, which I think is often overlooked, and you've obviously been in various parts of that infrastructure. How? What was? Did you find it in some ways? And do you think managers in general find it more frustrating being the one in the office managing than the one on the ground? You know that whole maybe having to say no, worrying if your mate's going to get back after the rally or the this or the that. Um, did you, you found that presumably quite difficult. And do you think that's a general thing with those kind of bureau chief positions? Oh, well, um, my job as bureau chief was also chief correspondent. Right, so, so I you... certainly did got, yeah. So um, it was a case of, you know, I, whenever there was a helicopter going, you know, oh, I'm going, I'll do that one. <laughs> you know? yeah. The, the helicopter whore. But, you know, there was also times where I was out there dodging the bullets during a siege or something. So I did have a very um, profound understanding of what yes. it was that m- my people were facing as well. And I call them my people because it was my responsibility as den mother for 40 Afghan blokes um, to make sure that they came back safe. And um, uh, what was it like? Well, you know, I was the boss. And so when I said, no, you can't go, they listened to me because I also had experience and therefore credibility. Mm. And they they also knew that um, if if they didn't listen to me, I had bosses behind me, you know, whether in Hong sure. Kong where the AFP editors were or in um, uh, Cairo where the AP editors were, to say, 
you know, I really don't want these guys to go out, but, you know, can you back me up on it? I never needed that, but they knew that it was there and I knew it was there. And so, and we also knew that we had all lost people over the course of that war, um, them more than me, um, as I came into it, you know, 10 years after it started. Uh, and so um, saying, me saying, no, I don't want you to go today, don't go, was was not me being trite or no. throwing my weight around. It was me being very sincerely um, uh, cognizant of the risk to life. And are those, are those kind of bureau structures still able to be in place in places like Afghanistan now, in places like Iraq now? There are, and there are obviously countries where it's almost important. You know, you can't really be a foreign correspondent in, say, Iran at the moment. You know, there are real difficulties reporting from places around the world now. Well, there are foreign correspondents in Iran and there are in Iraq too. And the bureaus, especially the wire bureaus, would, would still be functioning in the, that same way. There aren't any foreign correspondents in Afghanistan anymore because the Taliban is anti-media sure. and anti-West, as well as being anti-woman, anti-gay. Um, let's line it all up. Um, so th that doesn't happen. There are a lot of media organisations still functioning in um, Afghanistan, but according to very different rules, um, uh, probably similar rules to those that apply in, in China. Um, uh, so how do, they, how do they function? Was that your question? Are they still well, able yeah, to function? Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just fascinated about what, what it's like now, given the dynamics have changed. Um, the, yeah, I think, um, uh, I don't think that the nature of reporting really changes. You get the information any way you can, yeah. right? Um, yeah. I'm thinking of a couple of other things whilst you're describing what it's like and how actually in some ways it hasn't really changed. We've obviously had the Wall Street Journal's Evan Gershkovitz in prison now for seven months in Russia for mm. literally trying to do his job. Obviously, mm. as the situation in Israel and Gaza deteriorates, um, there are journalists losing their lives in that situation mm. as well. Um, mm. And it just shows, I guess, in some ways, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Well, yeah, um, the uh, Taliban locked up an Iranian photographer for very many months. He only got out a couple of weeks ago. So, um, uh, yeah, it's it still happens. These these are constant and consistent dangers that journalists face in doing their jobs. And I think that very few people are suited to it, but that those who do do it feel that they have a duty to because if they don't there is darkness you know yeah. and it's our job to shed light on those dark dark corners and i i i have tried to do that throughout my career and you know i get trolled and abused and um uh, lied about and attacked and a year ago as you know detained <laughs> um yeah that was fun uh, Oh, my goodness. You know, it took me a while to process that. I basically used it as a stand-up comedy routine for a couple of months. <laughs> and then I and then I thought, you know, I think I really have to deal with this in, in more than comedic ways. Yeah, well, just, <laughs> what Lynn's getting at is that she had a rather unpleasant, uh, I'm playing it down because I was 
<laughs> when I found out what happened to you, I was terrified as your mate. But yes, um, <laughs> there was a rather unpleasant experience where the Taliban in Afghanistan on one of your reporting trips decided to, uh, how can we put this, keep you in their company for a couple of days. <laughs> yes. In, no, not for a couple of days. It was less than a day. Well, it didn't um, feel like that when I was waiting for you to mention yeah. that you were okay. I know, I know. I, I, I did stay under the radar until I had my feet on Pakistani soil yes. um, uh, more than 24 hours later. But, but yes, the message was very clear. And it was, it was so clear that it was um, the death threats came to me from the mouth of a New Zealand citizen who is the um, spokesman for the Taliban's so-called foreign ministry who um, uh, told me that the way we deal with people like you is um, we kill them. And he gave me an example of a Taliban suicide bomb that blew up a bus filled with um, employees of a, of a local television station after the boss of that station, um, an Australian Afghan man called Saad Mosseini, refused to apologise for a story that was wrong. Mm-hmm. And the Taliban really took exception to it. Now, I believe, and I interviewed Mosseini about this afterwards, I believe that one of the duties that we have, because we are covering the front line of history, it's the first draft, as a friend of mine called um, Michael Goldfarb calls it, it's the first draft so, of yeah. history. That's what journalism is. And so it is our job to make corrections. We're, of course, we're always going to make mistakes. We don't do what we do in a cavalier manner, but we do make mistakes. And so what we do is correct that mistake for the sake of history and knowledge. And um, he refused because he's not a journalist. He's not a newsman. He's a moneymaker. And um, he his refusal to correct a very serious accusation against the Taliban uh, led to, after months of threats, to do it. Um, the murder by the Taliban of at least seven people who worked for his TV station. Mm. And this example was used um, by my um, uh, interrogators and jailers and in kidnappers, jailers and interrogators um, uh, as a threat. They they said I made up everything that I write because I didn't like what I had been writing about them. And um, this is what we do. We kill people who do that. So, you know, that that message was pretty clear. Yeah. And, the, and this happens, you're, I'm pleased you can share your personal recollections, but mm. I think the point you're really making is you are far from the only person that this stuff happens to when they're trying to get, uh, you know, get the truth and reality out there. Um, mm. Let's end on a bit of a positive because <laughs> being a foreign correspondent is not all darkness and scary and bullet dodging. Be honest, you guys have a bit of a laugh once in a while as well, don't you? Oh, a bit of a laugh. Yeah, it's great. I love it. <laughs> so uh, this is what, you know, it I is. think we should, we should put that in context as well. Well, I always used to say it beats working for a living. Right. Uh, well, that's why I always say about jobs. It's better than doing a proper job. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. uh, joking aside, it's not a job I, I could do, uh, you know, sitting here quite comfortably recording podcasts and writing about TV and streaming services and all sorts of nonsense. Uh, it's not a job I feel I could do, but it's a pretty amazing one if you're good at it. Um, where You obviously are still putting out all sorts of stories. Where can people keep up with your work, Lynn? Well, I, um, I'm a columnist 
for Foreign Policy magazine. Now that's behind a paywall, but it's I, I do think that it's worth the uh, the subscription. I have a stub a Substack site, which is linodonald.substack.com, um, on which I I I put at least uh, a, a smidgen of uh, of mm-hmm. my work. Um, there, I don't want to um, uh, uh, breach foreign policy's copyright. Um, I write for occasionally for the Chatham House magazine, uh, The World Today. I um, uh, also contribute to uh, The Spectator, for instance, Airmail, um, whoever pays me basically <laughs> these days. That's, that's what freelancing is. I also um, uh, do Monocle Radio uh, on a regular basis yeah. and other things like TV and radio elsewhere in the world on a semi-regular basis. So I'm kept pretty busy, Charlotte, and I and I like it a lot. Yeah, yeah busy. And we'll link to some of that stuff so people can keep up with your work. I'll put that Wonderful. all in the show notes. I'm at Charlotte A. Henry across social media. Do head over to theedition.net where you can read the regular blog post. You can also sign up to the newsletter, newsletter.theedition.net. And I will love you particularly if you take out a paid subscription. Lynn, thanks again for joining me and I'll see you all next week.